question of you. Let's begin there. What takes hold of your heart? What grips it? Um, perhaps you might think of, is there one, or is there two, or three things that have set up shop in the center of your affections? What might those things be? You know, do you spend time reflecting upon the nature of your heart? What pulls it? What pushes it? Um, I have make it, I've made it a habit of journaling, and it's not the best prose in the world. That's okay, because I just read it, so it's fine for me. But it's a way for me to reflect upon my heart. Or perhaps in your time of daily devotion in the Word, that you might be asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate your eyes, to see your own heart, how Scripture might, might uh, guide and, um, and instruct you. Um, these now, perhaps, and this question is perhaps hard to, to answer. It might be hard to diagnose even right now as we're sitting here in this morning. Oftentimes, actions, they can be symptomatic of our heart. So we can look to the actions, the things that we do or the things that others may do. They are, in a sense, the fruit of what resides in, in someone's heart. As we look through Scripture, both Old and New Testament, we find great examples of individuals who had the rightness of things at the center of their lives, or we see individuals and uh, communities that have the wrong set of things at the center of their lives, and we get to see how things have played out. So what does it mean to have your treasure be, and you can fill in the blank, money, power, fame, God himself? What does it also mean then? What does it look like for your heart to be found there also? And this, I think, is the challenge of, of our passage that's before us this morning. You know, this is, you know, I mentioned the first service, this is, I think, the, I'd call it the, the pastor's or the preacher's dilemma, that you're given a passage of Scripture, and where do you go with this? There are ten different ways that you can go, like with any certain passage. And so, this, we'll be looking at, this is what we'll be looking at this morning. What is the affections of our heart? Where is our zeal to be found? And how do we orient our lives in that way? Um, before, though, we jump into that, I just wanted to kind of set the landscape, as it were, in this passage. We're continuing on in John's gospel. Again, this is the second half of chapter 2. We read in verse 13 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus, he went up to Jerusalem. If you know your Old Testament or even just some of your basic rudimentary Bible stories, like the Exodus, this was the time of the Passover. Um, and so this was a key festival for God's people. The Passover was the festival which they recalled years and years and generations and generations ago when God's people dwelt in a land of darkness, in the uh, bondage and in slavery in Egypt, that God redeemed his people out of that bondage from that slavery. And so God had instituted this festival for them to observe that they might remember his wonderful works, in particular as the angel of death had passed over all of the houses in the land of Egypt. It was only those that were marked by the sign of the substitution, substitutionary atonement, right? The slain innocent lamb. Those are the houses the angel of death passed over um, and continued on. And moving into the New Testament era, this Passover festival was a high, was a high day. It, it's, here's a big word. It had, there was high eschatological expectation. What does that mean? It was people came with expectation that perhaps now at this time that the Lord might finally provide the Redeemer, the Messiah for us to deliver us, to deliver his people. So many people the time of the Passover, we're gathering together in Jerusalem. Security is heightened. There's lots going on here. And again, this was a Jewish custom 
to head up to Jerusalem at this time for this feast and only a few other feasts. So as Jesus makes his way in, we read now in verse 14, in the temple, as Jesus comes in, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there as well. And so we might ask, like, what are these, what's going on? What are these people doing here, right? It would be kind of odd if you came in this morning um, and we had some, you know, a cow or two in the back, maybe some hens as well, there's some sheep, there's, right? it would be quite odd um, to find something like this. And so what is going on here? Well, again, the Passover was a time of offering of sacrifices. And so people needed animals for which to sacrifice, but not just any type of animal. Right? The animal needed to be pure, spotless, and needed to be um, perfect in, in every way. And so rather than having people bring these animals along their journey, you know, perhaps they would get robbed along the road, or what if their animal fell sick? Now, like they, they, they now would have an insufficient sacrifice to offer. So rather than that, there were all these animals and money keepers there set up so you could simply come, show up, purchase your animal, offer your sacrifice, and all is well. Additionally, that this was a time where there was a tax to be paid to the temple, and so you need to have the proper currency. And in case you didn't, well, we have an answer for that too, right? There are money changers there set up to exchange things for you, make sure you have the right amount. They would take a cut, and then you could perform your duty. And now, you know, not to disappoint perhaps some, some of us here, but let's also realize like this passage, this is, this is not a passage, passage um, that justifies anger. Like, it's, you know, sometimes we might go to Scripture having a disposition, like, I want to find the passage just to justify the ways that I feel. Like, this is not it. Like, Jesus, yes, he's flipping over tables and everything, but we'll look at the reasons why. This is also not some type of peasant revolt or uprising of the masses, or it's not set out to promote one particular economic position or understanding of money. The Bible obviously talks about those things elsewhere, but that's not what we find here. But thankfully, in this passage, we find something of far greater value than those things. Jesus' actions are certainly motivated by his anger, his frustration, but only because of what held his heart. Or I might say perhaps more importantly, more, more correctly, like who it was that held his heart, where he was um, working towards, to whom he was driving towards. And Maybe one other comment here, just before, before we jump in here. There are, you know, John takes this passage, this point of Jesus' ministry, the cleansing of the temple, and he has it, as we see here in chapter 2 of his gospel. But if you were to look to several of the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they take this passage and they recount it as happening towards the end of Jesus' ministry. And I don't want to get into that whole discussion. There are plenty of knowledgeable people that, that, and you can read commentaries as to what may be taking place there. I think, though, one of the things we can glean from it, though, is that John has theological reasons for why he takes this event, and he puts it in the beginning of, of his gospel, of his story, of Jesus's ministry. Perhaps it is, most likely it's the case, that he wants to place um, the issue of the temple kind of front and center here. That's not to say that this story is somehow non-historical, but John has other, other ideas and other issues that, that he wants uh, to address here. And so we see Jesus. He enters into the temple, sees all this taking place, and now let's look at verse 15. What is it that he does about what he sees here taking place? 
Verse 15, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their temples. At this point, right, if you and I, if we had been there, we would probably just like step back and say, like, like, what in the world are you doing? Right? We would not really know who this guy is. He just walks in as any other Jew coming to, to do his pious duty of worshiping God here. But then he starts flipping over tables. He cranks a whip, and he's driving all these animals that are fit to be sacrificed. Um, he drives them all away. And, like, isn't what's taking place here that God, the people are coming to worship God alone? Why would Jesus come in and disrupt this uh, setup? Why, why would he come and disrupt these services that are being offered to these travelers? And we find, at least in part, an answer to that. We find that in verse 16. In verse 16 we read, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. And here's, here's the answer. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Or in Matthew, Mark's, and Luke's gospel, he says, Do not make it a den of robbers. Right? This was not the purpose of the temple is not to be set up where all this commerce is taking place. And, and in particular, this is taking place most likely in the court of the Gentiles. So it's not somehow outside of the walls, like across the street, you know, down two doors on the left, and there you go. This is taking place where people are worshiping the living God. Right? But this is not what the temple was designed for. The temple was, at that point in time, that was the place where God met with his people, with mankind. This was a place where people were attempting to worship that God. This was the place where restoring, at least to some extent, that people were able to restore their relationship through God. Often that happened through the work of the priest as he offered sacrifices and prayers on your behalf. This was the place of song. So in the latter part of the Psalms, there's a set of them called the Psalms of Ascent. Right? This is what they would sing as they're going up to Jerusalem to worship the living God. The temple was to be the place for worship for all the nations. But what we find here is rather than those things, perhaps some of them were taking place, but we have commotion, distraction, disruption in the court of the Gentiles. As the disciples later reflected upon Jesus' motivations and what he said in verse 16, do not make my father's house a house of trade, they connected what he said there and his actions with what we find in Psalm 69, the zeal for your house, right? That's his motivation. Zeal for your house, that's the house of the Father, will consume me. So these actions, though, the actions of Jesus, the things that he says to the money changers, to those present, and also in the hearing of the, of the disciples, would have raised and did raise the question of both identity and also of, of authority, All right? The disturbance here in the temple leads people to be asking of a sign. And that's what we see in, in verse 18. I'll read it again. So verse 18, the Jews said to him, the Jews said to Jesus, because of all that he just done, they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And that's only rightly so, right? That's not a question out of left field. If he comes in disrupting everything, them not knowing who he is, it's only right to ask, like, so what authority do you have to be doing this? You're disrupting what we have set up. Right? So think of it perhaps this way. If we were, if you're sitting in a nice restaurant, dining there, enjoying a delicious meal, someone comes in and says, that's it, everyone get out, we're closing the shop, we're closing the kitchen, you all need to leave. 
Well, not anyone can just walk into any random restaurant and do something like that. So the question would be, what authority, what sign do you give to be able to do something like that? And it, and it turns out, like, oh, they're actually from like, the state food inspector's office. Like, okay, they have all right and authority to do so, especially if they uncover issues within the kitchen, for example. Or perhaps when police go to investigate um, an apartment or a home, right, what do they need to show? They need to show the warrant. That's the proof. That's the sign that they have authority to enter in and then to conduct business. Again, Christ's actions here are not only a, a, a disturbance or a nuisance, but at least for the people at that time, it was disrupting the worship there of the living God. And so they rightly ask for a sign. And this is perhaps where, if you know a bit about Jesus, if you're familiar with some of his stories, some of the stories about him in the, in the New Testament, you would know that typically you don't ask Jesus questions, or at least if you're expecting a straightforward answer, right? Oftentimes people either ask him questions um, or they'll listen to some of his teaching and ask him what he meant, and then he just answers in a way that is puzzling and enigmatic. It leaves you perhaps with more questions than you had originally set out to. And this, of course, is what we find in verse 19. So they ask him for a sign, and what is it Jesus says? Well, Jesus answers them this way. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And that's, it sounds a bit ridiculous. It sounds even perhaps a bit, if not, impossible. Even like this building, right? If someone came in and said, hey, I'll tell you what. If you can just raise this thing to the ground in three days, I'll have it back up ready to go. Like that, that would seem almost impossible, even with all the technology that we have today, the advancements in construction, 3D printing of houses, it's, it, which is amazing. Um, but we think like this is almost, almost impossible. And then John, as he tends to do in his gospel, he kind of jumps into the story just to help us understand how we should understand what is, what is taking place, what he's saying. So in verse 21, we, we read this. So after Jesus says that, um, after he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, they respond, right, verse 20, it's taken 46 years to build this. Will you raise it up in three days? And John kind of pauses that, and he tells us, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. So that clues us into how we might understand the intentions and the ideas of what's going on in Jesus' mind. And so we might be left then asking ourselves, like, how is this a sign? Right? They're looking for some sign, something to authenticate the actions that Jesus is doing. Um, and then he says something like this, which obviously, right, for us we have the advantage of hindsight looking back on history, that we know this is an illusion, and, he, and he's speaking. He is foretelling of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So this sign, this, this is a statement of who Jesus is. It's a statement of his identity. Right? If he is the Lord even of death, then how much more so is he the Lord of the temple? Is he the Lord of the worship that takes place there? Is he, is he even also the Lord of our lives? And, you know, the language of this temple shouldn't, shouldn't be lost on us, that, right, that people were coming to the temple that they might rightly worship the one true and living God. But the one whom they worship at the temple is now in the temple, he is before them. He is in front of their very eyes, and yet they don't see it. They don't see him. They are blind to some extent. The temple, this was the place 
of atonement, and yet the greater atonement is before them. This was the place where the priests were to offer those sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the people, but in front of them the greater high priest now stands, and yet they miss it. So, we might think now of how does Jesus' identity, his actions, how do they affect our understanding of the things that, that he does? You know, if he, if he came into the temple there, let's say that he were some random lunatic, if in every sense of the word he had lost his mind, well, the next thing is, like, let's, kind of, let's get him out, we'll set back up shop, let's get the cattle, the sheep, kind of calm them down, get them back in, and just go about life as normal. Perhaps, though, let's say if he were a rabbi or a teacher there, that we might give him a little bit more time of day and say, all right, kind of show us some sign, do something, give us a word that we might know that you have some authority here for the things that you are doing. All right, but if he's Lord, if, as the creed says, that Jesus, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, if that's who this is, then our response should be that similar to the child Samuel when he said, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. If this is the Lord of heaven and earth, we would do well to give ear to him. Our response should then be to invite his reorienting of our lives, the things that we have set up. We should listen to his words. We should observe his manner of conduct, the things that he does. We should Im- imitate his posture of worship and also the things for which he is zealous for. Again, his actions are not those of some rebel or some revolutionary, but all this upheaval is because of the zeal he has for his father, for his father's will for all humanity, for his father's plan for salvation, and for the right worship of God himself. So we see that for Christ, the zeal of the father was the driving force of, of his earthly life. And we don't see that just in this passage alone. That's, we can find it all throughout Scripture. Think with me of just a few places. So the Lord's Prayer, for example, right? Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, in teaching his disciples and us as well to pray, what does he say? He says to pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We are to be asking for the Father's will, just as Jesus did as well, that those things ought to be done. Or later on in John 17, this is the beautiful passage of the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays to his Father on behalf of all of his people, including you, right? Thousands of years ago, Christ himself was praying for you to his heavenly Father. And there he speaks of accomplishing the work that the Father has given to Christ. Or to put a finer point on it, we might think of the prayer that Jesus offered to his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he says to his father, he asks him to remove this cup from him, this cup of suffering, but he says, not my will, your will be done. Christ is fully resigned to submit to his father because his zeal is toward him. He feels free and is free and willing to do so, to pursue the plans of the father because of 
who this father is because of his character, because of the authority that he has, that whatever the father asks should be done for the good of many in this, ultimately for the glory of God. And so as Christ has zeal for his father, we should, in analogous fashion, have a love, a zeal, and passion for the Lord himself and to orient our lives that way. And I think this is one of the ways, one of the lights that this passage shines on our hearts, right? A light shining in the darkness exposes all manner of just the situation, the lay of the land, how things actually look. And my concern, I think, what this passage draws out is that you and I all, to some extent, in some ways, day in and day out, week in and week out, that we have a deficiency in our zeal for the Lord. That doesn't mean that we don't love him. I think that many of us, if not all of us, do. That is a good thing. But there is, at times, a deficiency in our, our zeal for him. And perhaps I'd offer a suggestion of deficiency in one of two ways. That the first would be the object, the object of our lives, the object of our zeal, the object of our passion. What are the things for which you are zealous for in this life? And you can even think of tomorrow's Monday. Like, what are you passionate for? What's going to get you out of bed tomorrow morning? Right? What's going to get you up? Is it that you've been working for five or seven years to get that C-level position in the company? Is the thing for which you're most zealous for is that you just desire to keep peace? Like, that's a noble thing, right? We're supposed to be peacemakers, but is that the pinnacle? Is that the focal point of your life? I can ju- if I can just get everyone to get along and we're not quarreling, at least on the surface, all is well and good. Is the driving force of your life, is it the pursuit of money? What about perceived safety or family? Now, these are all good things, Right? All throughout Scripture, we see the Lord like praising and extolling these things. Right? There's so much that can be done for those who desire to be peaceful. Right? In the New Testament, we are told to be peacemakers or the use of money for the right things or caring for others or providing safety for those who need it or even the blessing of a family to raise up and instruct the next generation of the church. These things are all good, but they ought not to be the center and the focal point of our lives, and think with me, what if Christ had adopted that approach? What if the center, the focal point of his zeal had been position and status? He never would have left the throne of heaven to come down. He already had that there. What if his zeal was focused primarily on simply keeping peace? He probably never would have opened his mouth or committed any action. Oftentimes, almost anything that he did or almost anything that he said was met with opposition and frustration. So that was deficiency number one. I think perhaps our second deficiency in zeal is at times we have a half-hearted passion or devotion to the Lord. And and let's just be clear, right? Sometimes it makes sense. There are parts of our lives that are wearying and tiring, right? That's not lost on the Lord. Um, I, I think of in our passage even here that we look at the Jews as they gather together to worship the Lord, that they had become complacent with 
all this commotion and disruption taking place in the court of the Gentiles where the money changers and all these animals were, were simply taking up shop out there. They are okay with that worship of God being disrupted, but they would not be okay with their own worship of God being disrupted. The object there in their lives was correct, but the fire in their passion for him and that all nations might gather together in worship of him, that fire had died, it had dwindled, it had gone out. The, uh, the desert fathers, so these are men and women, so the fathers and the mothers lived centuries ago in the deserts of Egypt. They went out into the desert to um, seek out uh, just a greater union with Christ, and they identified multiple spiritual sins. For them, one of the chief ones was they gave the name of Assyria, or another name more popular today is the Noonday Demon, or we might call it Sloth. They just realized, especially when the sun got to the pinnacle of the sky, that I just get more tired. I, I do not want to keep battling sin. I don't want to keep devoting myself to pursuing God more. I just become exhausted. I become slothful as well. And I think the insight that they had then is applicable even to us and accurate for even us today. There are many times in our lives where I'm just tired, both physically but more so than that spiritually. That there are many things that, is, that assail your lives day in and day out, and at some point, it's just too much. And we allow our zeal for the Lord, the, the life that he has called us to, we allow that to simply die. But diagnosing the problem isn't where we want to end up, right? We don't want, you don't go to a doctor simply to say, here's the problem, and they just send you out the door. I want to, what do we do about this, right? So let's look now as we kind of wrap up our time here this morning, perhaps a few things. That what are some ways, what are some pictures of a life that, that, is, that has sufficient zeal for the Lord? Not a deficient zeal, but a sufficient zeal for the Lord. What might that indeed look like? And so I want to pull from just a few examples um, from two different authors. I think they do a good job of just giving us a picture of what this may look like. Obviously, you can look all throughout Scripture, and there are great many uh, individuals and also encouragements and exhortations to how we are to live our lives, and those are good. So, obviously, I commend those to you. Um, There's one author by the name of Dallas Willard. He's a Christian philosopher, theologian, wrote many books, many articles. One of them is called The Divine Conspiracy. And he he writes this in the beginning of the book. I think perhaps it gives us one picture of what does a life of zeal look like for the Lord. He says, individual Christians still hear Jesus say, whoever hears these words of mine, he's quoting now from Matthew 7, whoever hears these words of mine and does them is like those intelligent people who build their houses upon rock, standing firm against every pressure of life. Now he comments on on that. And this is what I think ties into what we're just talking about here. He says, how life-giving it would be if their understanding, if our understanding of the gospel allowed us simply to reply, I will do them, that I will find out how. I will devote my life to it. This is the best life strategy I have ever heard of. And then for us to go off to our fellowship, to our teachers, to our daily lives, to work, home, play, school, 
to learn how to live in his kingdom as Jesus indicated was best. In other words, one of the ways that we can work towards a sufficient zeal for the Lord is simple obedience to Christ as he had a simple obedience to the Father. This is obviously easier said than done, but we can make small strides, incremental steps, and the Lord is pleased in those small strides and incremental steps. Think with me, right? If you see young children just beginning to walk, what parent looks at their child as they're taking first few steps and is like, why haven't you walked a mile yet? What's going on, right? That's absurd. That's not the statement of a loving parent. But even when a child takes just a few steps and then stumbles, there's delight and joy in the parent for their child. Your heavenly Father is delighted in you and is overjoyed in you when you make even small steps like this. So that, that's one picture. Perhaps another picture is given to us by another author, J.I. Packer. Again, prolific author, wrote many things. One of them, a book that perhaps some of you, many of you have read, Knowing God, in there, one section, he looks at the story in the book of Daniel to give a picture of four ideas, what it looks like to know God. And I would say we can, this also applies to what does it look like to be zealous for the Lord. So his four things here that he says, those who know God, I would say those who are zealous for the Lord, they have a great energy for God. Right? The Lord has not saved his people to simply sit on our laurels and do nothing, but there's mission given to the church, that we are to go about our lives engaging in the works that the Lord has given to us to do. So let's do those things with great energy, with vigor, the second one that Packer gives us here, those who know God, those who have a zeal for God, have great thoughts of God. That at time and again, we might sit, consider, and reflect how wonderful the Lord is. Perhaps there's no better way than do, to do that than to reflect upon what was your life like before you came to Christ, if, you, if there was some demarcation in your life. Or perhaps if you've known Christ all your days, and that's a good Thing. That's a blessing from the Lord. That's not something to be set aside. But if you know him all your days, you can look back, though, and see what are ways that you have grown in Christ throughout your life. Um, I think of, you know, or words of the hymn that we can have in our hearts. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. Perhaps you might grab one or two portions of a hymn or a song like that and reflect upon them day in and day out, reminding yourself of how glorious the Lord is, and thus having great thoughts of God. Third, those who have a zeal for God show great boldness for him. Uh, there are many things in our life where perhaps we can simply go about our day, and we don't really need to be called to account for anything or be, um, have a statement of our belief, but at times those things do come up, or perhaps we can seek them out. Um, we can put ourselves on the line, as it were, having a boldness for Christ, standing for him. Um, again, not, right, not in this revolutionary, rebellious heart, um, but having a zeal for the Lord and the things that he gives us to do and the truth that he speaks to us and the truth that we are to share with others. Fourthly, lastly, those who have a zeal for God have great contentment in him. All right, there's a peace that will wash over you knowing that 
that the God of all creation, he knows you. There will be peace there. This last point is um, conveyed well in a, uh, a, a hymn written by a 17th century English pastor, Richard Baxter. And um, we read this, a comment, and then, and then we'll close. So Baxter says this, and again, I think this is, it's, it's just another instance of another picture of what does it look like to have a zeal for the Lord. He says, Lord, it belongs not to my care whether I die or live. To love and serve thee is my share, and this thy grace must give. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, then why should I be sad to soar to endless day? Brothers and sisters, that's the hope that you have right in the life to come, to soar to endless day. Because that is true, you are freed in this life to be zealous for the Lord and all that he calls you to do. For some of you, that may be perhaps leaving this area and going doing something quote-unquote radical. For others of you, that might be to have a quote-unquote ordinary life. These things are both, and many in between, are pleasing to the Lord. So I would urge us to live our lives that we might produce a song like this in our hearts and also to produce a song like this in the hearts of others. Will you pray with me?